I don't know if you have any special uh, like rituals in your family, uh, things that you guys have done over and over again. Uh, when I was thinking about my family, like we don't necessarily have any rituals, any things that are like this is what the family does together, except perhaps watch uh, movies together. That's kind of a, that's kind of a thing in our house. When I was growing up. We did have a really interesting ritual, which I think I probably have told you about before, but just pretend like you haven't heard it yet. Um, every Christmas, we would put up our Christmas tree, and we had a fake tree. Um, so we'd put the tree together, and then uh, my mom would uh, watch us like a hawk while we decorated it to make sure that everything was in the right place. And then once the tree was all done, we would turn off the lights and turn on the Christmas tree, and we would all bask in the glow uh, of that wonderful moment. And then uh, we would sing the song, O Christmas Tree. And then we would sing the second verse as animals. So we would bark the song, and we would go through this then as cats, as... I don't know how that started. Uh, I don't really remember. but you know, that's something that we did. You know, family rituals can be kind of weird, right? Uh, and and they, they are all kind of very unique to each family in each situation. Uh, sadly, we don't bark at the Christmas tree anymore. Um, but we do have three dogs that bark at everything. So, I mean, that kind of counts for something. We've been studying the book of Exodus together, and we are at a critical point in the life of the Hebrew people. You know, God called Abraham out to be his, the father of his people. And he promised Abraham that Abraham would be a great nation and that this nation would have land of their own. And this continued on uh, this promise through Abraham's one son, Isaac, through Isaac's son, Jacob, and then through Jacob's 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. And Joseph helped, as you know, the the Egyptian people get through a time of great famine. And while the Hebrew people were at first honored in the land of Egypt, because of the way that Joseph helped the nation out, that that honor and that respect kind of went away. And, And once that went away, once people had forgotten about what Joseph had done, well, the Hebrew people became slaves, and generations of them lived their lives under the firm and often cruel hand of their Egyptian masters until ultimately the Bible tells us that God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to deliver them from slavery. But of all the things that we've seen you know, throughout this story and throughout all the plagues, we've understood now that, you know, Deliverance is not an immediate thing. It doesn't, and, and if you think about it, it's really kind of never worked this way, where God simply like snaps his fingers or claps, whatever God wants to do, blinks. Whatever God wants to do, those things don't happen where there's often immediate deliverance. It took time and patience, suffering, to reach the place where we find ourselves today in the story. But finally, the Hebrew people will be set free. I think sometimes the idea of going from slavery to freedom is a difficult thing for us to identify with. I mean, after all, we live in a country that glorifies itself as being the land of the free. Uh, Most of us don't really know what it feels like uh, to have our lives 
dictated by the masters that are around us. And so it's hard for us to remember sometimes that at this point in the story where we are today in uh, Exodus chapter 12, there's not a Hebrew person alive who knew what it meant to be free or who knew what it felt like to be able to dictate the terms of their own life. Not a one. They were all slaves. And those that came before them were slaves. And those that came before them were slaves. All that they knew in their life was slavery. And what did they know about God? Well, we talked about this when we entered the story, that they knew God as a maker of promises. They understood what had been promised and that God held his future in their hands, that they would be this nation and they would have a land of their own. We also must remember, though, that they didn't have a law. They didn't have scripture of any kind. There wasn't a temple or any real understanding of corporate worship. The best that they had were these sacred places where God had appeared to Abraham or to Jacob. Um, And that's kind of the extent of what they had. But they didn't even have any of that in Egypt. They were a people who had a God but didn't know very much about him. So when God began to show himself through the plagues, this is the first time that the Hebrew people had really seen God in action. Um, And what did, so what did they learn about him through the plagues? Well, they learned that he is a God of great and unmatchable power. And through uh, the signs and the wonders they have seen, they have to have come to an understanding that this God is pretty real, right? He's not some idea that's out there. He is a God who actually works and moves on this world. And then they also learned that he had power over what? Everything, right? He had power over everything, nature, animals, insects, the body, the weather. This God can do anything. Now, that was kind of a really weird idea for them because how many, God did, how many gods did Egypt have? A lot. And and each of those gods did different things. So this idea that there's this one God who can show this kind of power and control over so much was kind of a novel idea to the world. And what they had to understand finally was that this God, their God, was not like the other gods. He didn't specialize in one thing. He had the power instead of all of them combined. And even more shocking had to be to them that this God who is so powerful is working on their behalf. I mean, think about what that must feel like when they've spent so much time being powerless. And here is the God of the universe making frogs appear from nowhere, right? Here is this God who is fighting for them and on their side. And I have to imagine that their confidence grew with every Uh, Every time that God showed himself or displayed his power, with every moment when they realized, wait a second, wait a second, God is doing this for us. He's on our side. When's the last time they had a champion on their side? I mean, Joseph? Generations and generations ago? So the moment has come. 
The tenth plague, which we talked about a little bit last week, will come to pass. The people will leave Egypt. But there has to be questions, right? Number one, how, how are they going to do this? Do they just leave? Um, and number two, when they leave, where are they going? And who's going to tell them that, where they're going? Uh, how will they get there? I mean, we know they're going to walk, right? But what's, what is the process of them getting to wherever it is that God wants them to go? And then what does it mean to be the people of this all-powerful God? Because here's the thing that maybe we haven't considered. They are learning about who God is, but for the first time in their life and relationship with him in generations, they are going to have to step out in faith. They don't know where they're going, how they're going to get there, how this is going to work. They have to wait for God to tell them and for God to lead them wherever it is he wants them to go. So let's look at part one here. Open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs." Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. All right, that's a mouthful for the first instructions that they are getting from God in this way. And it's really interesting to see what happens in this section. Because he tells them right off the bat that this is the start of their year, which is an interesting thing. So here's kind of what happens. You know, when a newly liberated people, 
uh, if they've been in slavery or they've been oppressed for a long time, once they become liberated, they will create their own practices and ways to observe and to celebrate that, that are in tune with their new status. They will create moments, celebrations, observances that are new to them as free people. We in this country did that, right? When we uh, gained freedom, when we established our country, we did all those things. That's why we celebrate the 4th of July and those kind of events. Those events came once we knew our freedom. And, and this formation is a natural part of that process. But here's what's weird about what happens in this story. In the case of the Passover, the liturgy, what they're going to do to celebrate it, comes before the actual event. Uh, all this instruction that they get, they're not set free yet, but they are to do all of these things. And we see uh, this in the things that the Hebrew people needed to do to get ready. It was imperative that they follow these instructions, that they uh, are ready to leave, that they, ha- they cook these things in, the same, in these certain ways, that they don't you know, wait for the bread to rise or all of this stuff. It's imperative that they follow all of these things for two reasons. Number one, they really wanted God to pass over their house. That, that was important for God to do that. They wanted the angel to pass over the house, and that would not happen if they did not follow the instructions. And this could have been a really tragic, did you read the whole email moment? You know what I'm saying? Don't skip anything. In this, because because you know the end result could be pretty bad, uh, and number two, they also needed to be ready to leave because once this plague goes down, it is time to go, and everyone is going to tell them to go, so they need to be ready to go. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but they need to be ready to leave right then. So when God gave them these instructions. He was teaching them to a degree how to take this moment seriously and gave them the ways to remember what happened. So like I already said, number one, this is great. Passover starts the calendar year, which again seems like a little bit of a weird instruction or way to start this out. Like, okay guys, number one, your year starts now. Wait, yeah, yeah, now. And Upon further reflection, though, it's actually not very weird at all because for these enslaved people, when does their working relationship with God fundamentally start? In this moment, right? What have they been doing during the plagues? Living, not suffering as much as everybody else, right? I mean, they had to deal with some of it, but some of it, they skipped them altogether. And so... This is fundamentally the moment where their relationship with God and and, and living with God starts. And it starts at this moment of liberation. This is the start of what your calendar as the people of God will be. And everything that comes after will spring from this, this moment, this time of liberation. Uh, Secondly, they were to eat lamb, but... There are a lot of instructions on not only which lamb to pick, but how they are to eat it. Uh, They needed to eat, but this was not like a, hey, let's see what's in the fridge meal, right? 
they, it was specifically planned and laid out by God. They were to take a year-old male lamb without blemish and prepare it over a fire with the organs and the arms and legs, and they were to make sure that they had the right amount of meat for their household. And if there was too much meat, they were to go and ask their neighbors to join them. All these instructions about what they would do, this will happen on the 14th day at twilight. Everyone's going to do this together. And you would eat bitter herbs and bread without yeast because you're not supposed to wait for it to rise. You are to eat it in a spirit of readiness. This is your meal on the way out the door. And then they were to put the blood of the lambs of the lamb, I'm sorry, on the tops and sides of the door frames. So we see here something that's that's pretty important, right? This is the beginning of their functional relationship with God. But like I said, this is also the time where faith is introduced to the conversation. And with this instruction, we see that it's not just about how and what to eat. The whole act of choosing the lamb, making sure it's the right amount, preparing it the correct way, putting the blood on your door things, door frames, all of these things become the first corporate acts of worship for these people. Even though it doesn't look like what we think worship is, that's exactly what it is. This is a moment of worship. And again, the part with the blood is the most crucial. But we can't ignore the fact that they have to believe in God and believe that God will say what he's going to do in order to go through this. Otherwise, none of it makes sense, does it? Do people normally put the blood of their animals around their door? Do they normally cook it in this way and eat like with a staff in their hand ready to go? No. They would only do that if what? They believe in God and they know that this is going to happen. They believe this is going to happen. So this is the moment for them. And, and, and putting the blood around the doors was one of the first communal acts of expressed faith. That they are now full participants in God's story. And on the flip side, if you don't do these things... What happens? Death, right? But if you don't do these things, fundamentally you're choosing to not be a part of the story that God is telling. Which leads us to part two. Not only is this a one, this is not just a one-time event. It's not a one-time thing. You're going to repeat this over and over and over again throughout your lives. Let's look at verses 14 through 20. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat, that is all you may do. 
Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. And just for the sake of the story, I'm going to say it one more time. Yeast. So we got a lot of instructions about the lamb, right? But now God is going really overboard on these instructions with the bread. Um, how many times does he tell them? And this is interesting. As, as a teacher, like sometimes, like I, I kind of get this. He tells them, and then what does he do? He tells them again. And he changes the wording slightly just in case they missed it the first time. I don't know how they could have missed the message the first time, but God is being very thorough with them. So this is kind of a moment where God is saying, like, look, pay attention, everyone, because there's going to be a test later. And the penalty for not passing the test is what? You are cut off from Israel. Seems kind of drastic, doesn't it? Yeah, you're, you're cut off if you don't do this. This but the point is, this moment is so big, so defining, so identity-giving that they are going to observe this every year on this day. And they're not just going to accidentally be like, oh, today's a Passover. Oh, great. You know, let's go to the Passover store and get all the things we need. No, it can't, it can't work that way. Instead, the whole month leading up to this one week is going to be about the Passover. And it's going to be about observing what God did for them. So it's going to include things like removing the yeast from your house. Now, for um, really Orthodox Jewish people, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when Passover is coming, uh, they actually will empty their kitchen entirely. And they will box up all of their regular dishes and all the stuff that they normally use, and they will put those things away. They will clean the entire thing, like, to where it is absolutely spotless. And then they will go and get out the box of their Passover dishes, which are dishes that, guess what, have never been touched by yeast. And they will bring those out, and they will use those dishes and those kitchen. It's almost like a completely new set of stuff that is just for that week and for that observance. Just sidebar question here. Is there anything that we take that seriously in our relationship with God? It's a little bit convicting to me to, to see the lengths to which these people are willing to go to honor God. And there's a great deal of emphasis put on here in this passage about what they will or will not do. But God needs them to know that he's not messing around with this. So, in fact, not only are you going to do all these things and there will be no yeast, but you are also not to work except to do what? Except to make food. That's, that's all you are going to do. Why does, why does God draw that line? 
Why does he say this is, this is the only thing you're going to be about? Because what's our tendency? Is, is, to work, is to do other things. Oh, but we're honoring God, but let me just go, let me go do this over here too. And so God lays down this thing that, look, you're not supposed to do anything else. And you are going to, and something that I think is brilliant, you are going to act out this moment every year. That's right. You are going to act it out. You're not simply going to talk about what happened. You are going to do these same things, repeat the ritual, repeat the things that you did on the night of the Passover, and you are going to do it every year as if it were all happening again, right in that moment. And why is it a brilliant move on God's part? Well, this first Passover is a moment of liberation, but they will not live out their liberation once. They will live it again and again and again, which is why if you have been to a Passover meal, you try the different food, they eat bitter herbs soaked in salt water because the bitter herbs soaked in salt water tell a story. They tell a story of when they were in slavery and the bitter taste will remind them of what life was like. And the salt water is the tears of the people who suffered. They are going to live out this moment again and again and again. They will forever draw themselves back to the place and time when God set them free. It's amazing to me that the first and again, it doesn't look like worship to us, but that the first moment of worship is not centered around simply God being powerful. It's centered around what? God setting them free. This is the defining moment. So much so that we mentioned this early on in this series, the Passover is considered to be the Easter if we were to draw a comparison for the Jewish people. Is Easter significant to us? Yep. And it is equivalent in their life. Let's look at part three, verses 21 through 28. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and he will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Which is a literal part of the Passover meal, where the children will ask questions. Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So God has talked Moses and Aaron through all these different things. They go to tell the people about it, and the message is simple. Like, all right, everybody get this? Good. It's time. 
It's time. Go choose the animals. Go uh, get all of this stuff going. And this connection, doing what God has told them to do, engaging the redemptive power of God, is an important moment for both God and his people because this is the moment. It's go time, right? This is the moment where they have to decide, is this real or not? They have to go through these actions and commit themselves to what God, and they need to respond out of obedience of faith. God is telling them this is the way to their freedom. Do they believe him? Which takes us to part four. I'm just calling this final details. The Israelites' journey from Ramesses to Succoth, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. When the dough the Israelites had brought with the dough that the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Now, just a couple of really quick things. Number one, that is seemingly an impossible amount of people. If you add everything else, it's somewhere in the like mid-million, like 1.5, 1.6, somewhere in that range. That's a lot of people. Number two, I don't know if you've ever noticed before, but other people went with them. Who are these people? We don't know. Now, these other people are not allowed to participate in the feasts. They're not allowed to do all the things that the uh, Hebrew people are doing unless they go through the ritual of circumcision, thereby tying themselves to the promises of God, and then they can become part of this liberated people. But there is something powerful to know that when these slaves were led out of Egypt by their God, other people wanted to join them. And they could, and they did. It was not only God's people that were liberated that day. Okay, so what do we, what do we take away from all of this? Well, number one, in the Passover, God is recognized and shows himself to be a liberator. The feast was created in anticipation of what he would do. And it became a celebration of what God did, in fact, do. He set his people free. He led them out of Egypt. He took them to the land that he promised him. And for all the ways that the Hebrew people were beginning to understand God throughout this whole story that we've been looking at, for all of those different ways, they did not yet know him as Redeemer, Savior, the one who sets them free. And so this moment, this going, this leaving, is God showing them who he really is. Because let's be honest, the God that they know to this part is someone who uh, makes promises and is someone who can do really cool things. But who is he going to be to them? And what does God say he is? I am the one who sets you free. There is no other God. And for us, looking back at this story, it's a good reminder 
to us of who God is. Because the truth is, guys, this is also our fundamental connection to God, isn't it? That God is our liberator. That he has set us free from sin and death, from our own failures, from the ways that we are mess everything up. God sets us free from those things so that we don't have to carry those burdens as a slave to sin and death. God sets us free. And sometimes we forget. We forget that our lives are lives that are characterized by being set free, by being given a new life, a new opportunity, something we never would have had without our God. Do you get that? And so when we see the Hebrew people put the blood of the lamb around their doors, we think, I know what that is. I know what that's about. Because that is just the start. That is just the start of the redeeming story that God is going to tell. Because as weird and messed up as the Exodus story has been, it's only going to get more weird. It's only going to get more strange as this new people of God wrestle with who God is and they fight back and forth, trying to be his, not knowing how to be his, fighting him. And we, (laughs) I mean, we're pretty much the same, right? But we know that through Jesus that God has overcome the things that are in us that would keep us from him, the things that are around us that would keep us from knowing his love. Praise God that he sets us free. Amen? Praise God that he sets us free. Praise God that he revealed himself to his people so long ago as the God who sets people free. And thank God that we get to live in that same freedom. Amen? Because we were once slaves and we are slaves no longer. And that is really good news.